Hello, everyone. Mark Bishop from Marble Media has uh, has joined us for for a great new episode of the Backstage Project podcast. Mark, hello. How are you? Hey, Mark. How are you? Doing doing well. As we record this, it is not quite winter yet. You know, here in Canada, so uh, I think we had a little bit of a of a warm a warm breeze yesterday. So uh, no shoveling <laughs> the driveway quite yet. <laughs> Hopefully not till next week. I know. I know. I got my snow tires on, so I'm you know I'm getting ahead of it a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> So, Mark, you know, as I was prepping to have our have our chat today, you know, I was familiarizing myself as best I could, you know, with with Marble Media. But, you know, without going too deep into it, tell us a little bit about about yourself and 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 the journey with with Marble Media, kind of to what it is today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, great great to chat with you today, Mark. Our company, Marble Media, we actually founded uh, 20 years ago. Uh, in my dining room uh, with my buddy and I, uh, Matt Hornberg, that we had gone to Ryerson University together in Toronto uh, and, uh, you know, really saw an opportunity to build a media production company in a different way. Seeing, I mean, again, you got to remember, this is like 2001. And so the internet, um, you know, was just coming online, if you will, in terms of high speed was just starting in certain key urban areas uh, and starting to see the potential of what that could could become from a content perspective. Um, and we you know one of our earliest projects we did was actually, a, you know, high definition short film, but showing it on a mobile device. Uh, and and I remember getting up on a panel at an industry conference and somebody saying like, my goodness, I just spent 10 grand on a plasma screen. Why would I ever watch it on this crappy little <laughs> cell phone? And we said, well, don't throw your TV out. But in the future, we're going to be able to watch content on different platforms. Uh, and that's what the, the, the potential of the future is that idea of being able to experience content in different ways and take it with you and watch it on the subway and, uh, you know, be able to, to, to actually have that and, and be portable. I mean, we didn't know what that was going to look like. We just knew that there was a different way of telling stories and a different way to engage with audiences. So that's, you know, our first project was actually a website for deaf children called deafplanet.com, which then spun off to a TV series. Uh, so again, it was always part of our DNA and our thinking of how do we, you know, look at the other platforms, how do we communicate and tell stories uh, in new and innovative and different ways and kind of flash forward 20 years later, I mean, we're still doing that. I mean, we're able to work with, uh, you know, all kinds of different partners, you know, new partners that obviously didn't exist 20 years ago, people like Netflix uh, and others, uh, again, who are great partners to work with to be able to tell stories and connect with audiences all around the world. You know, we create content really from a base here in Canada that we export around the world. In some cases, we do co-productions. In some cases, we go and sell the content ourselves. We have an integrated sales arm called Distribution 360 that's been around for about 10 years now. And we you know, have an office in, in London, uh, England, office here in, in Toronto, uh, one in LA. And really, it's about taking our content and third-party content and selling that all around the world. Because Canada is a great place to create content, to manufacture uh, to tell these great stories, and then we can go and export it uh, with all the partners around the world. And, you know, we're at this exciting moment in time now where, you know, especially as we've, we saw during the pandemic, and I, it will continue beyond, audiences are craving content. They're hungry for content. They're, you know, consuming new platforms. Uh, so the appetite has never been greater. Uh, and I think as a company, you know, we're, we're 20 years in, but we're really excited about the next 20 years of, you know, being able to tell stories and to be able to work with really interesting partners all around the globe. Uh, and connect with audiences. 
Well, it's, it's an amazing story that, that you just described and your journey and congratulations on, on 20 years. That is a huge, huge milestone. When, when you think about, about your business, I mean, just listening to you speak, I mean, it, it's, it, it sounds like, you know, you, you and your, and your partner and your team, you know, you're, you're, you're so entrepreneurial kind of at your core. And, um, and when we look at the, the changes to the distribution and the content formats, which you've described a little bit, a little bit already, help, maybe help us understand how, how you keep that kind of entrepreneurial spirit, that culture of, of, let's say, innovation over such a long span of time, given how much change there has been in the content creation and content distribution world. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think it's something that we have really prided ourselves on from day one, and that is to be able to listen to the market, to be able to try and look, you know, five minutes in the future and understand where we think audiences uh, might be headed, you know, and then try and imagine how, you know, what part do we play? I mean, how do we connect with that? Uh, and how do we leverage those opportunities? And, you know, there are regulatory challenges in some cases in terms of how we unlock funds. And we can talk about that later in Canada because we have a lot of you know, private and public funds available for content creation, but they require, you know, specific partners and in, in different ways to be able to, to access that. Uh, and then there's also a way of just being innovative and finding um, new uh, ways to connect with audiences, right? I mean, one of the things we did a few years ago when we started to see that there were less commissions, say for original content coming out of Canada, you know, our team kind of came up with this idea of seeing that, you know, just the, the proliferation of YouTube and the amount of content that was being consumed. Uh, and then a number of companies kind of came together, went to the federal government and actually were, were able to uh, work with our, our regulatory body to allow certain YouTube channels, including ours, Marble Kids, which was the first kids and family channel to get the certification to be able to unlock and trigger tax credits uh, so that we could produce our own professionally produced content, make it available again to Canadian and global audiences and still qualify for the same funding and incentives. So again, it's another example of, you know, being resourceful, seeing an opportunity, you know, and then trying to find a way to work within the existing system, but yet, you know, uh, advocate for change. Uh, and so we've, we've done that, right? And, and we will continue to do that. And, you know, also looking at different platforms and how we connect with audiences. For years, we were building games um, you know, web-based games, because that's really where audiences were. Then we transitioned to to making apps, you know, and then we made a smart speaker, uh, you know, game, um, sort of a combination of an app and, and, and a game, a smart speaker um, for one of our shows, just like mom and dad, uh, a couple of years ago, people could play along at home. Uh, and again, all of that goes back to the very foundation. The very first project the company did 20 years ago, you know, was an, an interactive multi-platform project called Toothpaste that we did, that which again was, was web, which was mobile, which was a game and all of that stuff. So it's always been in our DNA to be able to really, yeah, you know, think about new platforms to pivot. Because I think that's really from a business perspective, that's what's so important is that to understand your lane and what you're doing, but to be able to always have an opportunity to to pivot, to embrace something, whether it's to experiment, um, whether it's to explore a new new business venture, whether it's to look and say, how can we think differently about what we're doing? Um, and again, as long as you have the stability in your business to be able to pivot, and I, I think it's always when you're at the right size, if you're too small, it's difficult to do, right? Because you've got to keep the lights on. And if you're too large, uh, as we see in some of the larger broadcasters, you're just, you're so stuck in the way that you've done things for so long, it's very difficult to imagine doing anything different. And I think where, you know, again, medium-sized businesses have a real advantage is that you can pivot, you can look at those opportunities. And as we've seen over our 20-year history, be able to seize those opportunities. Not everyone is going to be a golden ticket, but what it will do is it will allow you to open a 
door, think differently, maybe, you know, adjust your business model a bit uh, and, and be able to really pivot and embrace something new. Wow. So for, for the audience, I mean, hopefully you're paying close attention to what Mark is saying, because I mean, Mark, what you're describing is, is exactly like, you know, you, you are threading a very fine needle there with what you're able to do as you navigate between, like you said, you know, a smaller kind of production or, or agency environment and then the larger broadcasters. And I, I mean, I love the reference to, to just like mom and dad. I mean, and I'm going to connect it back to a whole other, whole other slew of, of parts of my life. But yeah, I, I remember being, being at a taping, you know, I guess it would have been 40 years ago almost of the, <laughs> of the original. <laughs> Yeah, I'm that old. Yes. No, I'm not. It's not that old in, in, in the grand scheme of things. But I remember being at a taping there. And uh, I, th- I think it was probably out at where kind of the Bell Media agent court offices are, if I have it right. And then fast forward, whew, maybe 30 years from there. And, and I was working there. I was working for CTV on the Olympics and I was working for TSN. So absolutely understand kind of the big the big broadcaster mentality and how that works. And so you you've been able to create a business that kind of in Canadian terms, you know, feeds, feeds the beast. And, and I think for, for the audience, what would be great to understand is, you know, whether it's distributed on uh, you know, channels like CBC, which I know you're doing some of that, or whether it's on Netflix, which you seem to be doing a lot of that. Like, so the name Marble Media, while in the industry terms, I'm sure people know it and it's a great name and you're a leader in the space, but how does, how does that kind of come to be? How does your content uh, which is which you're creating end up being on these distribution platforms and channels. Let's start domestically, and then maybe you can kind of dovetail into it and how it gets in the international scene. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'll just say just on just quickly on just like mom and dad. I mean, I grew up watching just like mom and dad. I grew up in in just outside of St. John, New Brunswick, uh, and I grew up watching it and loving it every day. And it was you know the prize that you got when you were homesick is that you got got to watch it every day. Um, and uh, you know so that's why for me it was really rewarding when I was um, you know we, our, our company was growing. We were hearing opportunities around family co-viewing to go back and say okay what's what shows do people have in the vault that we could reimagine? And we worked with Bell Media and acquired that, did their first format deal, and were able to kind of bring that show uh, back to life for the next generation. And I was able to have my daughter come to set and check it out. And it was, uh, and my parents were in from New Brunswick. So it was a great full circle model. We won a Canadian Screen Award for that show, and I'm extremely proud of it. So, uh, but yes, I grew up loving and watching it as well. So it was a real treat and honor to kind of reimagine it, uh, that show for the next generation. Um, and I think it's a good example of being resourceful, right? And find, trying again to listen to the market and to hear what people are looking for and then try and find a need. So there, there's a good example where, you know, hearing opportunities that exist with multiple broadcasters. In this case, uh, you know, again, it was multiple broadcast partnerships. So Bell Media, of course, owning the rights, um, which again, they'd never done a format deal. In, in the 80s, when people created shows, I didn't even think, no one knew what a format was, right? So to actually go back and then kind of extract those elements, work with them and, and you know, license them, kind of create the format to work with an American buyer, BYU TV, who had just launched and were launching a lot of really, uh, you know, family focused content. And they were looking for stuff with kids and families on screen. And they just actually happened to come up to our booth at uh, MIPCOM, which is the annual television conference where our sales team go uh, in in Cannes. And yes, it's the south of France and it's beautiful, but we are inside a bunker. Um, so it's in the south of France, so I'm not complaining at all. Uh, but we have a booth there every year and it's a big trade show where all you know buyers are there from all over the world. And, it, you know, again, they, they came up to our booth and happened to express that they were looking for family content. They saw some of the stuff we were doing. They were interested from that. They did some acquisitions. We got to know them. And then, then they said, we really 
really want to have a game show. Uh, and it was like this light bulb moment of, oh, okay, uh, what about just like mom and dad, right? And then from that, you know, uh, being able to work with Yes TV, who had kind of said the same thing, if you can ever get this off the ground, Yes TV is a Canadian broadcaster. You know, they really wanted a premium game show. They are Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy in primetime. They wanted a Canadian show to go with that. Um, but they knew it was going to be expensive, right? And they said, if you can find an American partner, well, you see how this goes, right? So then we got them on board. Uh, we got Family Channel on board, which is, again, a, a cable channel in Canada that really looks for family-based content to have a second window, which means they air it after it airs on Yes TV. Um, and then, of course, Bell Media as, as our partner as well, too. So, uh, you know, you, you kind of look at how if, you, if um, you know, these things come together, it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, in this case, you know, we talked about that for years and it took all the right partners kind of coming together uh, to make that show happen. So there's there's an example where, again, it was a Canadian idea. We got the American partner on board, came back, got the uh, Canadian partners on board, made the show, uh, you know, ran for a number of seasons and, and was quite successful. Um, there's no there's no one path, I guess, is the other thing to say, which, again, is true of a lot of businesses. But especially in this industry, there's just there's there's never one direct way that, you know, ideas come to fruition. And some take, you know, literally 10 years um, to of believing of um, of hope, <laughs> of, of, you know, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and pushing that boulder up a mountain. Um, but a lot of times, again, what happens is you develop the idea, you take it out um, and, and pitch it to the different buyers. Normally, of course, I mean, we're based here in Toronto. So we start with the Canadian buyers and trying to get them on board. It takes a long time to develop ideas. You have to often write scripts and, you know, do casting and kind of get paint an idea. Because remember, you're selling something that is, you know, it's, it's air, it's, it's, it's virtual. People can't see it. I don't have a widget that I can show. You're kind of selling an idea of what a show could become. So in some cases you have a script, in other cases, maybe you have a Bible or a treatment, um, maybe a sizzle, something to kind of give them a sense of what the show is going to be. You know, if you're fortunate enough that you can finance a show in Canada, uh, and that's wonderful. We did that, um, Last year, uh, with a show that launched this fall here in Canada on CBC, our public broadcaster, which we shot actually in in my hometown in New Brunswick, it's called Race Against the Tide. So it's basically a, a sand sculpting competition series where sand sculptor artists from all over the world come uh, on the shores of the Bay of Funday, which also happens to have the highest tides in the world. So the hook is, of course, they have to finish being judged before the tide comes in and washes their beautiful sand sculpture away uh so it's a natural um ticking clock it's a beautiful canadian story in terms of something that's so iconic as the bay of funday um you know and it really gives an opportunity to celebrate artists from all over the world who just do work that is just so incredible uh so in that case i mean we pitched it to cbc uh they were excited we developed it we had to prove that we could find these artists from all over the world you know, we shot it in 2020, just in the peak of COVID times, where I think we were the first show that CBC had up in production, uh, you know, during the summer. So there was a lot to navigate and figure out. I mean, the many times when it almost didn't happen. Uh, so again, we we did that. We made that show. We fully financed that show here in Canada. Uh, was a great hit uh, this fall on CBC. Uh, and now what we're doing is, uh, you know, we'll be announcing in in uh, 2022, uh, you know, a lot of format deals where basically other countries who are really interested in what we did with our show are looking to actually license the format and
and then go make their own version uh, in other parts of the world. Now, some people might buy the tape, which again is just you know airing the Canadian version, and we'll be announcing some of those sales. And but other production companies that we're working with again through our sales arm are going to take it and license that format, which again has become a big business as you've seen with a lot of you know British and Australian shows that have come to North America. So the format business is big business. So again, a different way, a different model. That model didn't exist ten years ago, um, but now it's a different way that content then goes and gets distributed around the world. So, you know, the important thread in all of that is that there is no one route. There's a number of different routes and you just have to be really resourceful and uh, creative both in your ideas, but also creative in your approach of how you're going to take these ideas to market. I got to thank Andrew. I mean, you're, you're an amazing guest, Mark. I mean, the, the kinds of things that you're describing, I, I haven't heard before. I mean, I've been in the broadcast media business for about 15 years now and and this part of it, I just haven't heard from them. And, and the way that you built your company, how you're describing it, I mean, I can't even imagine. So you're not, I mean, I want to break this down a little bit. So you're not, if, if you think about kind of my, my background, my world, whether it's startup world or digital product, you know, we're, we're building prototypes. Maybe we're building an MVP, depending on how we fund it. We're going out there. We're maybe pitching it to clients, maybe to investors. You know, you're, you're kind of doing the same thing, but you're, it sounds like, and maybe I want you to kind of connect this to the, the, the digital capabilities that you have as well, because I know they're there, is like, like how far do you really have to go? I mean, I guess in UX terms, we call it fidelity, you know, so from low fidelity to high fidelity, like, and, and I'd love, I'd love for you to describe kind of this, well, I mean, it used to be called transmedia, I think, but I'm sure there are better terms for it now. I guess it's omnimedia would be the trendy thing to call it yeah. if we had to make up terms, but like, how do you, how is this kind of multi, we'll call it multi-platform end screen, how, how has this world changed what you do when you're not, you're not just selling a concept of a, of a show, there's so much more to it. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I only laugh, Mark, because there's so many different ways that it gets described. I mean, now we talk about the, the metaverse, right? But it was... Oh, yeah. I mean, sorry. You said it. You said it first. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to have to, <laughs> I have to say it. So we're talking about the metaverse, but I think back to when we were, you know, convergence and you know, I think actually 10 years ago, we were saying that we were actually uh, awarded from Playback Magazine, which is our, our trade publication in Canada for film and TV, as Transmedia Producer of the Year, right? And it was like, okay, that's that was the, the buzzword 10 years ago, right? And so it's, it is interesting to watch how they evolve. Um, you know, and I think the important thing for any of these words is it goes back to what I was saying about when we started the company 20 years ago, right? Which is the idea that, you know, consuming content is not a single screen experience, right? It's about looking at the journey that audiences are going to take when they engage with your brand. Um, and so when you think about it in that way, you know, in depending again on the audience, and it's not the same journey for every piece of content, because it really depends on the content and depends on the target audience. But, you know, if I take an example of when we do a kid show, um, for example, you know, then that, that, that is again, slightly different because it's normally again, a linear screen based experience, which is, and I put air quotes around television, right? So that's really more of a, you know, telling a linear story. Then there's also, and then you think about the audience then going to an interactive platform and then some sort of an engaging interactive experience. Maybe it's a game, maybe it's an app, um, likely on a mobile device, probably a web-based browser, depending, uh, right? So again, another, you know, extending that, those characters and that narrative in an interactive environment. You know, then many times, especially with more of the educational kids stuff we've done in the past, and it's actually experiential, but trying to get audiences to go out and do something. We did a show many years ago called This is Daniel Cook, about a little boy going out in the world and doing things. And again, same thing. It started from a show. We built a great big, in, you know, uh, interactive uh, game and app that kind of went along with that. 
But the other foundational pillar, again, because this was a live action show where people. No, could, no I know you know, the show. I mean, I have the theme song in my head. My kids used to watch <laughs> I'm not it. Sing it for you. <laughs> <laughs> but what I, you know, what I personally loved about it too was the third pillar, which is actually going out and doing things, right? And we 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 created the show so that half the episodes were relatable to kids and half were aspirational. They'd like to do when they grow up. But a lot of it we shot, you know, here in Toronto. We traveled a bit. We went to uh, you know Walt Disney World and shot episodes, and so we we did a bit of traveling to the west coast of Canada as well. But all the locations we went had some, we were able to leave a plaque or some sort of a marker to kind of encourage kids to go out and do those things. Some kind of legacy. So much feedback, right? From like the Harbor Front Center, for example, in in Toronto, but kids coming out and wanting to do what Daniel Cook did or the zoo or the science center. Um, And again, it's that idea of seeing what what you've, you've had um, that content experience and then going out in the world and doing something and making a difference and having impact. So again, that is, that is whatever you want to call it, transmedia, um, you know, metaverse, whatever. It's, again, extending that narrative and that journey onto all of these platforms and looking at what's appropriate, right? Not every show needs all of those things because the audience isn't going to do it, right? But it's That's looking right. to say, you know, how can I leverage the opportunity that you have with the platform to really, you know, dig deeper? Or maybe you extend it or you do a spinoff or, you know, there's just so many, you know, different possibilities all depending on the platform. And I'll just say the cool thing now is that then you can actually now have access to data that we never had before. So I think of the stuff we do with Netflix, the amount that they know and understand about their audience really gives you an opportunity to be able to then, you know, expand the world and expand the narrative. I mean, we we have a big show with Netflix we do called Blown Away, which is a reality competition series about glass blowing, and with incredible artists from all over the world. So we've now done multiple seasons, you know, and we're just actually, you know, right now because we're recording this in November, we're just you know a day away. Uh, tomorrow we're actually launching Blown Away Christmas, which is a spin-off short run series, uh, you know, inspired by Blown Away. Hosted by Bobby Burke, uh, again, who's well known from from Queer Eye and uh, again, was a big fan of the show, was very active on social, um, you know, and then again, using that data, being able to see that engagement, we actually brought Bobby on board to host. Uh, you know, again, this spinoff series of Blown Away Christmas. And he's been great. It was great to work with. Great fun, great promoter uh, of our show. Um, and so, again, having access to data both directly from the platforms to having access to social media data uh, to really get a sense of where your audiences are. You can really then create and learn as a creator of how to tell different stories. So I think we have a lot more tools now than we ever had before because we understand the audience. And now we can, you know, we can pivot. We can, you know, change experiences based on, you know, what we know audiences might uh, be willing to, you know, and open to engaging with. Yeah, so there, there's so much there. I mean, when you, when you said blown away, I, I was thinking about the, the kind of the tragedy of the two Corys. That, that, that was a movie from the 80s, right? That was the, the 90s. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, I think Corey Haim uh, lost his battle a few years ago. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So ours is very different than that. Yes, but, so of course, uh, of course. <laughs> same name, uh, but uh, uh, very different. <laughs> now, the, the, the Netflix part, and I, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but you, you mentioned their data and, and listen, the, the amount of personalization and data that they use, which, you know, to, to the users, to, to us, I mean, we have no idea how much they are targeting from the content we see to the thumbnails we see, you know, in our feeds, like, and it's probably better we don't know all that, but as a producer, as a partner of theirs, how much access do you have to that? 
Uh, well, I'll say, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the thumbnails because it's one thing, I mean, we, again, at Marvel Media, we have a whole in-house marketing uh, team, right? And we create social media assets and we engage with our community and build build out fan bases. Um, and normally what happens is, again, we our teams work and create a number of assets while we're in production. We deliver them to broadcasters. And um, again, you kind of let the broadcaster you know, have all these assets and they, they can, you know, in, engage with uh, their audiences. Difference with Netflix, like they actually request, and I don't know the exact number, but it was hundreds of, of individual pieces of content for marketing uh, so that they have access to a real library to be able to respond to their users. So to your point, when you go and look at your Netflix menu tonight and you scroll by blown away, you're going to see a different clip than I see. You know, you um, you know may see a different icon. You'll see something different when you look on your mobile device versus when you watch it at home on TV. Um, and so it's just, you know, again, and there's an algorithm that sits behind that, that, you know, again, I can't even begin to understand that really is able to target based on your preferences, what you've watched, what they think it's, you're going to respond to. Uh, so we as the producer are delivering again not just a show but a number of these different pieces of marketing assets that can really help to feed that engine because ultimately i mean what are they trying to do they're trying to serve up content that you will find to watch the content um to maintain your subscription right it's pretty simple right so yep. it's actually not it's not about advertising dollars it's not about I mean, anything else other than that metric of maintaining your subscription which is about having content that they think you're going to respond to and serving it up in an interesting way. And I think in an era of discoverability, look, that's the biggest challenge. I think that, um, well, one of the biggest challenges that we face as, as producers is, you know, in the sea of content um, where, you know, the, the audience is king, the content is king, but really the audience is king because the audience has a lot of choices. How do you help raise the profile of your content and how, how it surfaced. Discoverability is really, you know, a real challenge. So working with partners, again, like Netflix that understand that, who can really understand the audience, uh, you know, right down to being able to understand the difference between your profile versus your wife's profile versus your kid's profile, and then be able to target content and introduce new content that uh, they think you're, you're going to watch. So our job is to make sure we can help feed that and create some of those assets to make them um, available so that they can, you know, uh, reach out and share that and it's exciting and it's exciting to see you know not just the stuff that, that they and we do on social media to kind of build awareness and tease but what they can do within their own individual platform and I think the other uh, streaming services are following suit as well because it's you know it is different it's not like again a traditional broadcaster where you've got commercial airtime plus then you've got promo time and you can promote other shows and a lot of that cross promotion like none of that stuff happens on the streamer so it really is about you know, competing for those little tiny squares or rectangles, depending on which way you're looking at your screen, that's it, right? And you just have that quick second when somebody flies by to see, you know, am I going to be able to entice them to watch your content? So it's a very different challenge that they have, but it's exciting to work with them. And on your question of data, I mean, we can ask very specific questions and get very specific answers, but, uh, you know, I've sat across the table from some of our Netflix execs who have it all on their mobile phone and you just want to just borrow it and stream through it. But it is, uh, there is a code of practice there that they will not release any of that information. Um, so they don't, but they will, they can give you very specific information. If you ask, we can find out exactly which markets, you know, shows are working really well in, use that to educate, obviously casting and thinking about future seasons. And they, you know, they'll share the information with you to help make your show better um but at the same point they're very guarded uh, because that that is their trade secret 
It's amazing to watch them, the rise of some of the other streamers. I mean, uh, recently Apple Plus has been on more and more in my home, not not just the morning show, but other other titles as well. When when we turn the clock back, not not too long ago, and you know, we've had uh, and you probably know Phil, we've had Phil King on the podcast. It was more so a sports focused podcast, but we've had him on. I'm sure you've been across the table from him or people who work from him over the years. Absolutely. My, when I when I kind of entered the fray there at Bell Media or CTV at the time and then TSN, you know, and Phil was in charge of kind of everything rolled up to him, TSN, the CTV network. And I remember the trips, especially when the sports folks started to get into the media, kind of the, the conventional business, they started going to LA, you know, during during the buying season. And it was all about that upfront, as I'm sure you're you're well aware. And and a lot of this made sense, you know, 10, 12, 15, obviously 20 years ago, where you know, you'd buy a show to serve your audience, like you said, for to meet advertiser demand. I mean, it was a, I'm not going to say it was an easy business, but it was a simple business because what was happening in the United States, I mean, except obviously we know that there's carriage of those, you know, channels from the big networks over here in Canada from the, the local affiliates. But but in simple terms, and CTV could sell that audience in some broadcasts, but, but not really. But the point is like marketing is like you described, like, you know, you have this big audience, you have promo time, you run promos on your shows. Now, of course, we, we still see today, whether it's lower thirds or billboards or all these other tools that, you know, broadcasters have to promote or cross promote content, it's all there. And in the old world, let's say it was fine. But in the new world, when you're, when it, when you're the producer of the content, you're selling the show, you're creating the show. And then you're kind of dividing up territory by territory who the distributor is. And you, you already mentioned social media, and I get it. It makes sense in a Netflix world or an Amazon Prime world or an Apple Plus world or any of these kind of platforms that are global, where really the, the job of promoting the content doesn't know, doesn't know borders because it's available kind of in the same service all over the world. But, but take us into this, this lens of kind of the, the distributed world where you have one broadcast partner in Canada, you have another, maybe you have Netflix outside of Canada, maybe eventually even in Canada, once that time runs out, mm-hmm. then you have another distributor, like you said, in the United States, like how much onus is on you, you know, as the producer, really the, the content owner uh, to be able to service that social marketing type audience to drive viewership on all of these different services in different territories. Yeah. Well, again, I think what's interesting on that question is that the, I would say the role of the producer has really changed in the past few years, right? Where it is no longer, uh, you know, when I joked before, like you make the show, you give it to the broadcaster, you give them some uh, pictures that go with it, they can use for marketing, and then you move on to the next one, right? Like that's not... That doesn't exist anymore, right? So it first of all is it's a partnership with your broadcaster, and you kind of start from day one about you know having that engagement. Like in our kickoff meetings, the marketing team is always involved, you know, right from the very beginning, just as an example, right? Because you're constantly talking about you know reach and how you're going to connect with audiences and what what platforms it's going to be available on and and what assets do you have to support that, right? Because it's one thing to you know talk about you know you're going to do this on social media and that, but then you really have to figure out you know roles and responsibilities what's you know the broadcasters team you know you they may have a social media agency what's our role as the producer we have an agency that we work with um you know and so you've got to kind of divide up the turf um and that's just for one country right and then you get into something where it's like then you're dividing up 
uh, the world, right? We just launched a, a new series that's rolling out right now called Overlord in the Underwoods, which is a hilarious family comedy about this overlord from another planet who's done horrible things, but he's now in the witness protection program and has to come live with this nice normal family uh, here on Earth. Uh, and so it's it's a really hilarious, you know, family comedy, and I'm sort of inspired by, if you remember from the '80s, Elf or Harry and the Hendersons yeah, or those, you know, type of things. Um, and it's just it's really it's beautiful, it's heartwarming, and it is it's hilarious. So it rolled out out here in Canada a couple weeks ago on CBC Gem. Uh, you know, previous to that, it rolled out in the UK on Nickelodeon. Um, now, just last week, no, this week is rolled out in the US on BYU TV. It will now roll out on Nickelodeon uh, starting in December across their global feed. Uh, then it's on ITV in the UK uh, next summer. Then it goes, anyway, on and on. You see where I'm going. There's a lot of partners. Right now, like, how do you keep track of all of that? (laughs) Exactly. No, we've got a a really smart team at Marble that keeps track of all this stuff. And and again, it crosses over between the distribution side and the production side and the marketing side and all of this. And then we, on the distribution side, we've got other deals that we're going to be announcing about other, you know, platforms that are going to be picking up, up. of the show subsequent to that so imagine that whole big web then you basically have to look at and say how do you actually market in each of those individual jurisdictions when they all have different broadcasters they all have different launch times and all of that stuff right so then i mean that's actually where social media is actually great because then what you can do is you can actually do targeted campaigns so you know we've been working in canada kind of promoting and driving audiences to cbc gem for the show uh and so doing a very targeted um you know ad buy on a number of digital platforms to really drive eyeballs, but targeted to Canada, you know, doing something separate for the U.S. Uh, in many cases, it's a partnership, like I said, with our broadcast partners. So you have shared responsibility, you know, you're investing dollars because we're spending ad dollars to kind of drive eyeballs, um, again, to their platform uh, within their territory. Uh, and in many cases, you know, I think the big thing as well, too, is that our buyers look, you know, within that early window, um, you know, it's, you know, it's it's out there publicly known, like Netflix, for example, looks within the first 28 days um, to actually see what that uptake is like. And that's how they decide on subsequent seasons. Most of the broadcasters are the same with their streaming platforms. They really look within the first month because that's where, again, they, they put, you know, marketing support. That's where we, you know, put a lot of effort. Um, everybody wants shows to succeed, but they will have to look at the numbers and see if it actually make sense and doesn't make sense to continue and, and order subsequent seasons. So all that to say, you put a lot of effort into each of those areas uh, in in those early days to really make sure the show is going to pop as much as possible. Um, you're investing dollars, investing time, investing resources, in many cases, deploying different pieces of content. You might do tease campaigns leading up to it. Maybe it's behind the scenes videos. Maybe it's other content that you produce kind of adjacent to the show. And we have a whole unit that produces that content at the same time as we make the show and then deploys it on the different platforms. You know, you've got different assets you put on Insta versus what you put on Facebook uh, and so on. And then you've got a whole big release schedule uh, for social on all the platforms and all the territories and when all the stuff is getting out there. I mean, it's more complicated for reality competition because you have spoilers and things like that that you have to be very careful about. Uh, it's a bit easier on the narrative side, but still you've got to, you know, you got to be very careful. You can't have sort of a global Facebook page that says, oh, on tonight's episode. And it's like, yeah. wait a minute, that's not that's the same exactly as in Canada and the U.S. and all of that. So you have to target all of that. So it does, it takes a lot of work and planning. It's complicated is, yeah. is the basic, is the basic <laughs> exactly. response. Yeah. So the squid game, and you probably knew I was going to mention this. Of course. <laughs> what? So squid game comes out. I still have yet to see it. I'll be honest with the audience. And I'm pretty sure I stopped my kids from watching more episodes. So squid game happens. Um, 
from what I understand, it is the most successful international distribution uh, for Netflix yet. Yes. So what have you learned already and what have you changed in your business after watching the success of Squid Game? Well, I think there's a lot of things that are exciting from both a production and a distribution standpoint that Squid Game has kind of broken a lot of rules, um, you know, and I think, that, you know, the first being that, you know, I think what was designed as a, a local, you know, regional show on the platform, because remember, of course, Netflix as a global platform, you know, has offices all over the world. They target subscriber growth and retention, but growth in different areas. So to do so, you know, what they do is they say, okay, how can we make shows that are going to work in a certain area that are with local creators that work really well, um, that really have to play in the region well. And if they work internationally, great. But that's really not um, why we're making it, right? Uh, and Squid Game broke that rule, right? Because it, first of all, you know, was something that they didn't think anybody would watch, um, you know, outside of, of the Asian market. And then all of a sudden it explodes. Right. Uh, and so there's there's that. Right. So it shows, you know, again, the appetite, which we're not totally surprised. I mean, again, we all watch shows that come from other countries um, all the time. But the other interesting part and, you know, again, to seeing how you know controversial it's become about their their, their dubbing versus subtitling, the fact that audiences are that interested in consuming something that is not produced uh, in English, that they're watching subtitles or dubbed, um, which is something that, you know, right across the board, we've, we've heard a lot of time, especially in North America, and the North American audiences, you know, don't like uh, watching dubbed or subtitled programming um you know they'll do it if it's a you know, foreign film they've heard a lot about but you know from a sales perspective you all, you often hear they just won't watch it right um and so what's great from a distribution standpoint is that it proves that's not true if the content is really compelling and buzzy uh then they will right and they'll not just watch one episode they will binge the entire series uh with a hunger for more right and so i think it uh, it's definitely broken down a lot of those norms that, uh, you know, the, the unwritten rules that people have thought about before, um, you know, and, and again, a whole cast of unknowns. You don't need to have big stars and celebrities in every single project that you do, which, again, was something that, you know, some of the other streaming platforms have just insisted on. Like you you need to have a big star attached to it because, again, back to my comment about discoverability, the streaming platform's biggest challenge is discoverability and retention. So, you know, again, how do you get people to discover? Well, of course, the easiest thing to do is put a star that you can put in the in in the banner that people know, and then they're going to watch. Um, and that's been the model that a lot of the streaming services have used. Well, Squid Game didn't have any stars that we knew in North America. Um, and it was still obviously a, a, a huge driver. So I think it, um, it has changed a lot of the thinking about uh, all of those pieces. And just allowed for really interesting, noisy, compelling content uh, from a creator who really believed in you know the story that he was telling. I mean, he he developed that project again ten years, pitched it to a whole bunch of people, and you know a lot of other buyers uh, who looked at that and said, uh, "No way! Like this is never going to travel. It's too expensive. We can't do it. like all of the reasons that we all hear." But he believed in it, uh, you know, and just kind of kept at it. And then when Netflix opened an, an, an office, you know, he went, he pitched, you know, he got a Netflix exec who believed in his vision and the rest is history. Right. But again, it's that 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 power of persistence of being able to see the future, which you could do and kind of see, you know, by creating something really noisy and buzzy in, in Squid Game that audiences would connect with it. So, again, it takes a lot of passion, takes a lot of champions, it takes 
timing, all of all of those things. But I think now it will be definitely a game changer in terms of how, you know, again, these global streaming platforms are looking at the different regions in the world. Uh, and I put Canada in that. I mean, Canada is not the U.S. I mean, we have a lot of similarities to the U.S., but it's a different. And Netflix has just opened an office here. Amazon and and Disney have both, you know, they've announced new hires all in 2021. So it's like there's definitely, you know, seeing you know, great stuff that can come out of Canada that can work not just for this audience here in the North American, but can travel globally. So I think it it opens a door up for the whole world in terms of, you know, stories can come from anywhere. Uh, they just have to be really compelling, you know, really noisy and interesting and well done. Yeah, well said and well described from obviously an, an expert, an expert in, in, in the field. I mean, thinking about my own personal journey, you know, trying to watch Narcos a few years ago when I had too much time on my hands, obviously it's all pre-COVID. It was, <laughs> it was hard to multitask uh, with, with the subtitling. You know, fast forward to, to COVID and, and a lot of these dubbed uh, pieces of content came out. Like Lupin is, was, it was a fabulous series. And, and yes, the language was, was a little off, but you know what? It was still, it was still great content. What, what I'd like to do with the time we have left, we, we do all like to keep our, our sessions to under an hour. And I think you and I could easily talk for a few hours. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so um, I just have a few questions that we'll ask you kind of the way I like to ask everyone. I'll, I'll, I'll start with um, a question about uh, what, wh- who, who inspires you? Uh, it could be someone, you know, it could be someone you don't know. And, uh, and, and I do know, I see it in your background there. We are, we are, we are talking on zoom, but we're only going to have this as an audio podcast, but I, I, I do see a particular frog in the backdrop there. So, uh, I, I was curious to, to understand, you know, who, who motivates you as, as a creator. Yeah, great question. Uh, and there are a couple of people that, uh, you know, inspired me uh, in in my formative years, uh, you know, one being Jim Henson, uh, who obviously created Kermit the Frog and The Muppet Show, uh, you know, both from a creative perspective and a business perspective. I mean, he was just such an entrepreneur, creative entrepreneur, right, who really just believed in his craft and, and uh, you know, his stories. And, you know, if you look at what he did with The Muppet Show, of you know, he couldn't get the show sold for to save his life in North America, had to go to the UK to make it and convince people. And then, you know, again, within six weeks, it became the number one show on CBS syndicated and it went on for many years. When he did Fraggle Rock, he actually came to Canada and it made Fraggle Rock in Canada with the first HBO original series uh, made in Canada, co-production with the CBC. So anyway, just a different way of working. Uh, I've had the opportunity to work with his company and with his daughter, Lisa, uh, on a project uh, a couple of years ago called Hiopi and just lots of respect for the Jim Henson company and for Jim um, and his legacy and just just sort of inspiring a whole generation. So, I mean, he's one for me. Walt Disney is an obvious one as well, too. Again, of really kind of believing in the power of, of imagination, uh, you know, and uh, I have a quote on my wall that says, it's kind of fun to do the impossible, right? Which is something that Walt would often say, right? And so just really believing in, in yourself and believing that, uh, you know, great ideas are worth pursuing. Uh, even if uh, everyone, the market, whatever says that you can't, uh, you know, you really just kind of drove at that. And obviously, um, you know, was just such a, a visionary. Uh, and then from a Canadian perspective, who, a guy who was actually an American, but came to Canada as well as a guy named Mr. Dressup, uh, played by a guy named Ernie Coombs. Uh, and again, who came to Canada with Fred Rogers uh, to create a, a, a series that then became Mr. Dressup, uh, which was a morning show uh, on CBC television for many years. And I had a chance to meet him. He travels across the country and I had a chance to meet him when I was five and you know and and I told him years later when I got to meet him as an adult like that for me was my turning point to get inspired about television because I mean again I grew up in a small town in New Brunswick 
nobody came to our town to visit. I had never had, had any exposure to television, but here was this guy that was on TV every morning at 1030. And when I met him when I was five, my mom tells the story where like the whole way home afterwards, I was like, well, how did he get here? And how come he's not on TV? And, you know, how does he make a show? How did, how did a show happen? Today? And just, you know, yammering as I'm doing right now, um, because I was just so you know inspired by him uh, and really kind of realizing it from that. That was my moment of realizing, oh, there's actually a business in television. That's where I want to be. Uh, and the kind of that set me on a path to, you know, wanting to to tell stories in this screen based media. So anyway, those would be three uh, for me that were big inspirations. No, those are really, really great ones to choose. And, 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 and we've talked around it a lot, but Canada is certainly a hotbed. It continues to be a hotbed for creating children's television. Um, I remember another show. Uh, filmed here locally in Toronto, uh, you know, Sharon Lois and Bram, The Elephant Show. Yes. Uh, one, one of my, still a good buddy to this day. He was on a legendary episode where he stole the cookies from the cookie jar. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> if you bet he's, his hand is coming. Anyway, it's, it's hilarious. Uh, he, he had to come late to summer camp that year because he had to, he had to be filming. So that, that was a fun little story. Boom. And the Walt Disney piece, and this appeared on my Twitter feed. I'm sure it's been out for a while now, but his his business card surfaced on one of my Twitter feeds recently, and it's amazing. For anyone who hasn't seen it, it's I mean, I'll let you search it up on your own. But you know, Walt Disney cartoonist, uh, Kansas City, Missouri. I mean, it's just I'm sure you might have seen it, Mark. It's just yeah. amazing how that company has. I mean, there's so many successful companies, but that company really above all has just changed the world. Oh, absolutely. But again, Walt had all kinds of struggles, right? And I think it's always important to remember, like, I mean, again, his first designs that he made when he was a, a cartoonist, you know, again, he did a deal that wasn't a great deal and he ended up losing the rights to them. And, you know, again, that's why he became so protective of Mickey Mouse when he created Mickey Mouse is because of the, the previous designs he had done. So as an example, right? So he had, he had business struggle. He came near bankruptcy. He, you know, um, had to leverage every dime he had, you know, in terms of making a number of the movies, you know, and then they put everything into building the theme park in, in Disneyland and many times on the brink of, you know, is this actually going to happen? So I always, you know, always have to get reminded of those stories because you, you see Disney now of what it is and, you know, the massive entertainment machine and how it's transformed, you know, every type of entertainment, uh, you know, forever and ever. But you, it's always good to remind ourselves that, you know, there were a lot of struggles that he had to have to get there. And there were a lot of people at the side laughing of like, really, really? And, you know, cartoons, this is how you think you're going to build a business and make money. So again, he, uh, he believed, right. He just kind of kept at it. Uh, his partner or it was his, his brother, Roy, and, and the uh, two of them were just a great tag team of just, you know, believing, working hard and keeping really, really focused while still being able to pivot and do all those other things that we talked about earlier in our conversation today and just, you know, never losing sight of, of the prize and also never, never forgetting about the audience that was going to keep, you know, consuming and enjoying the content. Listen, it's been great. It's been great chatting. I'm going to keep you for a couple more because these are these are important. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I could talk all day about this stuff. So. <laughs> all right, so this one might be a little tougher to answer. So, why, why don't you uh, why don't you tell us about your most memorable career moments? Uh, well, I can tell you, it's interesting. One comes to mind uh, right away, which was actually when we were working with the Jim Henson Company. I think you were just talking about, about Kermit the Frog. And so when we were working with the Jim Henson Company, we were co-developing this show, uh, which we ended up producing uh, here in Canada called Hyopi, which is about a little Muppet going to school uh, for the first time. And he happens to be the only Muppet in his class. So 
you know, he looks a little different than you and I, and that's okay. And we embrace that. And it's, you know, it's scary to go to kindergarten for the first time and all of that. So it was a beautiful series. And we were working with the Jim Henson company and we were, you know, having that moment of developing and designing our Muppet. Uh, and so we were at the Henson boardroom, which, I mean, again, the, the Jim Henson company is on the old Charlie Chaplin lot uh in in uh it's in hollywood Florida. right yeah, I've, yeah. I've, walked, I've actually walked by yeah it's I on remember. la brea so it's I was in, like oh yeah. this is where it is yeah west hollywood and if you walk by again it's they've got a giant kermit the frog at the top and it's a really cool really cool lot which like i said was the original charlie chaplin lot um and uh they in their boardroom they have when you go upstairs they've got this massive mural that was hand painted it was a gift that jim received um and it's an inside of the muppet theater and it has all the muppets and the fraggles and the sesame street characters and there's lots of pictures of jim in front of it like he loved this mural so they have it mounted in, in the boardroom um so you've got a picture we have this moment lisa henson who again the ceo of the company you know comes into the meeting she's carrying a big stack of papers and she puts them down on the table for us and she's sitting in front of the mural and she's basically just, had just come over from the creature shop and she's showing us all of the different designs and wanting to get our our input right so this one looks a bit too much like gonzo this one looks a little bit you know too much like scooter let's right and you think okay you gotta pinch me for a second because i'm sitting in the boardroom in front of this massive mural that i've seen many times of every muppet fraggle and sesame character that jim and his team have created and we're designing and developing our own muppet with jim's daughter right and actually having a brainstorming session where you know together we're collaborating and, and kind of building this thing so to me, that was a deaf and pinch me moment of my five-year-old self would think this is pretty, pretty cool. No, that, that, that is an, an amazing story. I, I, it was, <laughs> yeah, I would, I wouldn't say it was my most memorable, not that I need to ask myself questions on our own podcast, but there was at one point I ended up in a room with James Cameron. Oh yeah. In, in, in Europe. And it was, and there's four of us and, and he was pitching, he was pitching us. <laughs> on his 3d technology and that was the moment i'm like it was just beyond i mean I, james has done so much for me I mean, i'm sure you would have been more appropriate in the room than i was uh but it was just one of those moments like am i really here anyway i, I just love those moments where you you actually see these people and you realize how human they are like we met oprah we, we did an oprah episode years ago with daniel cook and i got to meet oprah backstage afterwards uh, and it was just such a wonder beautifully human moment like we were backstage in the green room and I had to go to the bathroom. So I did. And I went and I washed my hands afterwards and my hands were still wet. And of course I came out just at the moment that Oprah walked in and she was just so fun and playful about apologizing to me that they were out of paper towel. Right. And we were just joking <laughs> and laughing and you're just like, yeah, you know, just hanging out with Oprah. Right. Because those are moments. Now it doesn't happen all the time, but when those happen, you just have those moments where you realize it's like, yeah, we're, she's just another human and we're just hanging out uh, and uh, being real. That, that those are amazing stories. I'm sure you have about 10 more to share. One <laughs> thing that is, you know, it's, I'm, it's piquing my curiosity. So I want to make sure we answer it for the audience. So there was Daniel Cook. And I remember that Daniel, and I'm not sure how you define it as a half sister or a stepsister or a good friend, but there was a female version of Daniel too, was there not? There was, yes, absolutely. After we did uh, two seasons of This is Daniel Cook, we wanted to do a show from a little girl's perspective. Uh, so we, uh, we, we found an incredible um, let's say young woman. Now she's in university actually doing her master's um anyway called this is emily young and so her name was emily young 
who lived outside of, of Toronto. Uh, and again, very similar story where we, we did a casting call. You know, every agent across North America sent all of these kids in. And, you know, M had, uh, she, did, she didn't have an agent. She was playing soccer. Uh, and it just so happened that our director, his mom, worked at the small town library. And this little girl came in every Saturday and was always, you know, checking up books and talking and stuff. And so she said, you know, you should really, you know, get her to come in and, and meet you. And she came in and the night she came in, she just come from soccer. She had a bandage on her face telling us about, she was five years old, telling us about the soccer game she had played. And we're like, this is the girl. So I took her first headshot, ran over to the network the next day and we got approval and the rest is history. And again, we sold that show to Disney worldwide as well and went on to, uh, to, to do quite well. Um, but again, you just, you never know where you're going to find some of this, these amazing talents. Um, you know, and Emily's done incredibly well. And then she chose to not do any more acting and really kind of, uh, pursue academics. And like I said, she's doing, doing really well. And we've kept in touch. Uh, so it's really, it's, it's beautiful to kind of watch that happen and watch these kids, they're real kids and watch them grow up. Um, and it's funny, we still get fan mail for her, of course, because new, new audiences are still checking out those shows and writing in and wanting to have a play date. Um, <laughs> So we just don't, 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 don't tell audiences how old she is right no, now. And it's, I, well, we will not. And, and it is, and I, I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, we're going to put our hearts on our, our maple leaves on our sleeves here. You know, that's, that, that happens in Canada, you know, finding Emily Young and, and kind of the, the diverse, open, you know, tolerant society that we have and then making her into a star. I mean, that, that's amazing. And a credit to you. So everything you've described over the last almost hour should make anyone listening incredibly you know, excited about the world that even though the, the, the demise of the big broadcasters has been talked about, it hasn't happened, but even if, you know, their businesses continue to get disrupted and maybe the CRTC can protect them, maybe the Broadcasting Act will change. I know there's a lot of maybes out there right now. We don't have time to get into all that. I'm sure you're an expert in that too. What, what I'd like you to do is give some advice to people who, who are looking to kind of enter the space and, um, and, and share it with, uh, you know, I'd say a very positive perspective. <laughs> no, I mean, listen, I'm excited about the future. When I said before, I mean, yes, we're celebrating 20 years at Marvel Media, but I'm really excited about the next 20 because I think we're at a point where audiences continue to consume content in different ways. And we have new platforms launching every week. And we've got, uh, you know, different ways that broadcasters are are working. You know, many are working with, with their own streaming platforms or others. So I think there is, we're going to enter a different era of collaboration uh, moving forward. I think there's a different way, um, you know, the, that audiences are going to consume content and different platforms. Yes, there may be some platforms that are going to amalgamate with others. There will be new streaming platforms coming online just as there has been over the past couple of years. So all of that, I would say, presents great opportunity for creators, uh, for storytellers, uh, producers, writers, directors from all over the world, right? And I think as we've talked about today, ideas can come from ev anywhere, everywhere. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, where you are. It doesn't matter, you know, you're listening to this right now and you're in a small town and there's no TV and, you know, nobody from your, your town has ever done. It doesn't matter. It's all about having a great idea, right? And so I think, yes, then there's a different path to get there right there's different ways to reaching out either to production companies or buyers or distributors or streamers or whoever uh, there's no there's no easy way to make it happen there's no shortcut but a good idea is a good idea uh, and deserves to be shared and i think now more than ever you know audiences are willing to consume great ideas and producers buyers want to find those great ideas so i think for creators people looking to enter the industry uh, you know, now is a really exciting time. We're embracing diverse voices more than ever before of wanting to tell different stories in new and innovative ways. So, you know, the sky's the limit. 
Mark Bishop of Marble Media, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been a real pleasure. The Backstage Project Podcast is brought to you by Ready, Set, Go. They help organizations create extraordinary digital products. To learn more, go to readysetgo.design. If you would like to get in touch with Mark and the team at the Backstage Project Podcast, please email us at info at tpbpodcast.com.